The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or, or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and Samurai, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, ten, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Thanks, Golden. Reads that like a married man now. <laughs> <laughs> Proud of him and all of our, got a lot of weddings this year. I was joking with somebody, I had uh, four straight weekends from May until June um, of weddings every weekend, and I said, all, all these youth group kids are growing up when I first came here, now they're all getting married, and uh, really, really proud of them. Well, we are moving today from the book of Luke to the book of Acts. If you've been around for uh, any length of time this year, on Sunday mornings, we have been preaching through the book of Luke, and you have been immersed into the life of Jesus, um, his words, his actions, his opportunities, the people that surrounded him. And we are today, as we concluded the book of Luke last week, moving into the book of Acts. Now, I will tell you, uh, one of the people I was listening to, I, I listened to sermons online and go find other preachers and listen to them. And um, he was preaching on the, the story of the ascension from the end of the book of Luke. And he started out his sermon saying, today is a, is a monumental day for our church. We have come to the last section of our series on the Gospel of Luke. And he's talking about the story of the Ascension. And he said, this is a monumental day for our church because it's been an incredible 10 years of studying the book of Luke together. So can you imagine taking one series for 10 years? Are you all up for that? I, I laughed. I was like, okay, okay, so six months is not that bad. <laughs> but you know, really, we're not really moving so much because the book of Luke and the book of Acts really are united together. They share the same author. It's the Luke, it's, it's the, um, Luke who was the physician who traveled with Paul and was a companion of his who did mighty research, was exacting in understanding the life of Jesus and the life of the early church 
And he wrote what, was many, what many understood to be one book with two volumes. And they often called it Luke-Acts. You see this in the introduction to Acts when he says that his first volume in verse 2 was all, um, verse 1, was all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that really means that Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Luke and Acts are not about Jesus and then the church. They're about Jesus, his ministry on earth, and now his ministry in heaven. You see, Luke was a history of Christ's earthly mission, and Acts is a history of Christ's heavenly mission. Luke was the story of the man Jesus, and Acts is the story of the movement of Jesus. Luke was the word of the gospel, and Acts is the work of the gospel. And in Luke, we see the author screaming to people, his readers, you should be a disciple of Jesus. And then you come to Acts, and he's screaming in every page, go make disciples of Jesus. These two volumes, Luke and Acts, are bridged together by this really important event in Jesus' life, one that's overlooked often. Um, if you ask people probably the most important events in Jesus' life, uh, it's probably the ones that we have holidays built around. You know, we have the birth of Jesus, we have the death of Jesus, we have the resurrection of Jesus. But there's this one event that comes 40 days after his resurrection that is monumental when you understand it, and that's what's called the ascension of Jesus. When the God-man Jesus in bodily form ascends to return to be with his Father. This event is the great transition moment in the history of Christ's mission here on earth. You see, for three years, Jesus had been the one himself carrying out his mission. He understood the mission. <clears throat> he believed in the mission. He was the one that was doing the mission, carrying it out. <clears throat> and it's at this moment of his ascension that he transitions this mission from himself doing it to his church. He's going to let them carry it out. Now, this is kind of a big deal to hand somebody your mission, to have other people do it. You know, it's interesting. Corporations spend millions and millions of dollars uh, year after year trying to write and craft a mission statement that will capture the heart of the company's purpose in a way that the employees of that company, who might not be executives, can do what the company wants them to do. You know, corporations all over, many of you work for corporations that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to figure out how to write a statement, how to write a mission, so that those who work for the company will know what to do and how to carry that out. It's a pretty difficult thing to do, uh, to turn over your mission to other people to do. And Jesus himself did a masterful job here in our text. He put together his mission so that others could live it and execute it. And he did it in a really simple way. I want to show you this morning. The first thing is his mission has clarity. The second, he gave competency to those people who were doing it. They had confidence. And finally, the commander in chief of this mission. Let's start first with the clarity of the mission, okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You know, when I start talking about mission statements, some of you might begin to shudder or kind of glaze over, like worrying this might become a corporate talk. Uh, you probably think about cheesy, sort of bloated paragraphs that are filled with adjectives that are made more for a Hallmark card than really having an impact on somebody's life. 
You know, I actually did this. I went, I know some of the corporations that many of you work for, and I went and read some of your corporate mission statements for where you work for. I almost thought about doing this, taking the names out of the company and reading them to see if any of you really know the mission statement of your own company. <laughs> There's a few of those I thought about trying to read and just see if you could come up with. Uh, yeah, that's my company. I know. That's what we do. Because don't won't we all agree that mission statements are oftentimes bloated with all these descriptive terms? They're, they're just they're like this exercise and just creative writing, right? When you read um, what most people criticize about mission statements, here's what they have to say. That they usually are too generalized. People read it and they don't know what it means or what you're supposed to do with it. There's a lot of fluff involved in them. They're long oftentimes, you know, when, when companies are trying to articulate what they're about, it ends up being a sentence, then two sentences, then four sentences, and then paragraphs, and then it just gets expanded. And the biggest complaint was this, that it's inspirational, but I have no idea what to do with it. It has no impact on the ground level of the employees of the company. It's just this big uh, fancy paragraph for executives to have on a placard in their office. That's all it is. It lacks clarity. Now look in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says to his disciples, here is the mission, so don't miss it. You will be my witnesses. Starting at home, Judea, and incrementally moving out into the world. That's it. No adjectives, right? No, no, like, you will be my excellent, amazing, stupendous witness. He doesn't do that. He just says, you will be my witnesses. We know who? Who's going to do this? You. We know what we're going to do. We're going to be witnesses. And in Luke's version of this, uh, in, in the end of the Gospel of Luke, he talks about us being witnesses of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, all those things that have to do with the message of Jesus. So we know who it's you and me. We know what we're going to do, be doing, being witnesses. We know where. He says, start at home and incrementally work out from where you are. Start where you are. It's that Simple. I don't need to add anything else to it. There's amazing clarity with this. Any question about the mission of Christ that we are called to do um, is just clouded. There really shouldn't be any question. The only question we really should ask ourselves is this. In all that I'm doing in my life, am I a person participating in the mission of Christ? So think about all the things that you do in your life, as uh, in your relationships, in your work responsibilities, community endeavors, all of the things that you do, hobbies and activities, all of the things that you do, do you participate in the overall mission of Jesus Christ, who now is ascended to the right hand of the Father, being the witness of Him, starting at home, incrementally working out to the world? There's a lot of good things that the church can do, a lot of good things that you can do, but the one question is, am I doing this? Am I sharing with those around me a hope that can be found in Jesus Christ? Jesus' mission has incredible clarity. But the second thing that he does is he doesn't just give us clarity in this mission, he also empowers us with competency. Now, this mission might be clear, but it is far from simple and far from easy. 
preaching Jesus to people, teaching people about Jesus, sharing a hope in Jesus, invites a lot of questions. The fact that this man claimed to be divine, meaning he was God, and that he now claims to be the Lord over the entire world should naturally invite people to be skeptical who don't believe in Jesus. Would you agree? That there's a man who said, I am God, I was dead, now I'm alive, and I rule the world. That basic sentence should cause people that don't believe in Jesus to be a little bit skeptical, to ask some follow-up questions like, are you sure? How do you know? Can you prove it to me? His witnesses need to be handled to, need to be equipped, excuse me, to handle those questions, and thankfully we can. You see, in that period of time that Jesus had from his resurrection when he was brought back from the dead till his ascension when he went back to be with the Father was a period of 40 days. And in those 40 days, Jesus got his guys prepared for this job. He made them competent. Look in verses 2 and 3. He says um, in chapter 1, Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands... Through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is probably the most effective preaching school or seminary that the world has ever known. In 40 days, he took cowardly men and prepared them for the mission of their life. In 40 days, he met with them. Um, might seem like a little bit unfair, right? That they got to hang out with Jesus for 40 days. He, he wants us to participate in this mission. I haven't gotten a chance to hang out with Jesus personally for 40 days and be told exactly what they were told, but it's really not unfair. You and I actually have access to the content that Jesus was sharing with them in those 40 days. You see, in Luke's account in chapter 24, um, I'm going to read a few verses if you want to look there. We actually are given a glimpse into the training that Jesus gave his disciples. Look in verse 44 in Luke chapter 24. It says this. Then he said to them, uh, this is right before his ascension. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, what is the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? Put those three together, you have what? The entire Old Testament. The law of Moses, the first five books, uh, the prophets, all that goes in between, and then the Psalms were, were, is the first book of the wisdom literature that is gathered together. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, everything written in all the scriptures that they had until this point must be fulfilled. In verse 45, it says this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Well, what did he say? What did he do to open their minds to unlock the mystery of scripture to them? Verse 46. He said to them, thus it is written, <clears throat> that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father. Stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. First and foremost, Jesus in verses 44 and 45 showed them this one thing about Scripture. 
Here is the interpretive key about Scripture that you've got to get. That the whole Bible is really about Jesus. Did you know that? From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is pointing us to understand Jesus. Look what he says in verse 44. These words, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about who? Written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What Jesus is claiming is that everything we have in Scripture really is primarily about Him. It's pointing us to Him. It's enlightening us about Him. It's teaching us about Him. Let me try to explain what I mean. The interpretive key that unlocks all of Scripture is that everything is about Jesus. When you look in the Old Testament, you learn that the true and the better Adam not just the physical Adam, but the better Adam is really Jesus because Jesus is the one who didn't fail the test but passed the test in the garden. And he gifts us with his obedience, not disobedience. We learn that Jesus is the true and better Abraham. That he too, like Abraham, leaves his home, follows the call of God, and creates for us a new people that are now the people of God. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Remember that story? Who sits at the right hand of the king and offers pardon to those who have sold him into slavery. Jesus does that. Jesus is the true and better Moses who walks up to the power that holds us in slavery and says, let my people go and leads the people of God out of slavery, standing and delivering them through the Red Sea and then stands in mediation between God and them, bringing a new covenant. That's Jesus. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes our victory, although you and I never lifted a stone to defeat our giant. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk his earthly kingdom, but gave up a heavenly kingdom, and didn't just risk his life, but gave up his life so that he might save his people. Do you realize I could go on in every case, in every story of the Bible, and show you how they point us to a true and better Jesus? He is the greater Abraham. He is the greater David. He is the greater Moses. He is the greater Jonah. He is the one. And what Jesus did in that moment to give these people competency was to show them that all of Scripture is teaching them how to be witnesses of who He is. And you and I have that opportunity. So your Bible, the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories it is a single narrative that points us to Jesus, that teaches us how to be witnesses. So your Bible study matters. That you engage with the Scripture is exactly what Jesus was unlocking for the disciples, the apostles, in those 40 days. Is what you and I can do to go into the Scripture and understand how they teach us who Jesus really is. Our time in Scripture is training us to know Him and ultimately to share Him. And I want to make this one other point about us being competent. Because as we study Scripture, we learn more about who Jesus is. It makes us better witnesses. But competency does not mean that you know everything. That's not what the word competent means. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after Jesus spent 40 days teaching these apostles about the kingdom of God and who He is, they say in verse 6, Okay, so Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In 12 words, they made three major theological mistakes. 12 words. You can get that far off track in 12 words. 
They were that messed up. They thought Jesus, in that moment, for that particular nation, was going to give them political power. Do you see the three mistakes? In that moment, for a certain group of people, political power. For 40 days, they're hanging out with the resurrected Jesus, and he's telling them that all of these things, I'm the better David, I'm the better Moses, I'm the better Elijah, I'm the better whatever. And they're going, okay, so are we going to get power now? Are we going to get rid of these Roman people? And are we going to be in charge now? And Jesus just, okay. Competency is not about knowing every answer. Competency is about knowing how to go get the answers. Know this one thing. All of Scripture is pointing you to truth about Jesus. Who He is, what He has done, and what He's offering us. And it makes us powerful witnesses. The third thing Jesus does to get us ready to be witnesses is not just uh, giving us clarity and competency, but He also gives us confidence. i got to go quick on this point, but in 1 verse 3 it says this, In those 40 days that Jesus spent with them, <clears throat> He presented Himself alive to them, after suffering by many infallible proofs, meaning Jesus was over and over verifying, guys, I'm not dead, I'm not a ghost, I'm a resurrected Savior. He even let Thomas feel the prints of his wrist and in his side to show him that who he was. One thing is for certain about this point. You will not join the mission of telling people about Jesus Christ if you are not confident in his resurrection. Do you know for certain, not just hope or not just assume or not just kind of maybe think it sounds good, but do you know for certain that Jesus Christ was a man who was God who died and did raise back to life? And if you were asked by somebody right now, if you witnessed to them saying, hey, yes, and listen, I believe that Jesus Christ was dead and he's now alive. He's the risen Savior. He's our Lord. I believe that he is a resurrected Savior. And somebody said, how do you know that? Do you have the confidence to answer that question? Now, I don't have time to flesh all of this out. I'm going to give you a quick uh, answer on this, but there are a mountain of resources that I'm willing to share with any of you that want these. Let me just tell you a few reasons why I know Jesus raised from the dead. Number one, the empty tomb. No, many people did not want Christianity to spread. The Jews didn't want Christianity to spread, right? They wanted Judaism to stay. The, the Romans did not want Christianity to spread because Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And at any time in the process of Christianity spreading, that they wanted it to stop, all they had to do was present the body of Jesus. That's all they had to do. All they had to do. They were so worried about the body of Jesus being taken and being, being said as resurrected that they put armed military people in front of the tomb. If Caesar... Or if the high priest wanted to stop Christianity, all they would have to do is show the body of Jesus. And they never could show the body of Jesus. They couldn't. History records they could not show the body of Jesus. The second thing that makes me certain about Christianity is, or I'm sorry, about the resurrection is the rise of Christianity. In the world in which Christianity started, it was a Jewish and a Greco-Roman world. In the Jewish world, they thought it was blasphemy to worship a man, to say he was God. That violated their monotheism, that there is only one God and he is in heaven. And so to say Jesus is God violates the Jewish mind. And yet Christianity took off. He had to prove that he was resurrected for Jews to believe that he was God. Had to. 
And in the Greco-Roman world that we still to this day revere the philosophy of many of those Greek scholars, we still to this day, thousands of years later, respect the thinking of those people. They were smart. And to say that a man was dead, gave up his life? No, no, no. Conquerors in the Greco-Roman world didn't kill themselves. They killed people to conquer. And yet the message of Jesus was he laid down his life and it took off like a flame in that world. This man had to prove that he was resurrected from the dead. Empty tomb, rise of Christianity in that world. Eyewitnesses, over 500 at one time who were named specifically, meaning Anna from Columbus, go ask her. That's what they said. And you could, while she was alive, go ask her, did you see Jesus raised from the dead? Hundreds and hundreds of people said, yes, he raised from the dead. Think about this. Do you believe that Julius Caesar lived? Do you believe that Alexander lived? Do you believe those things? How many eyewitnesses have you spoken to? The number of records that, that say that those people lived is, is a fraction of the number of records that say Jesus raised from the dead. A fraction. They raised from the dead. The, first, the second thing about eyewitnesses is this. The people of the eyewitnesses, who, do you remember who the first eyewitnesses were of the resurrection? The ladies. Mary Magdalene. Now, this is just a commentary on the first century. Women testimony was not valuable in the first century. In fact, it could not be used in a court of law. And so if you were going to concoct a religion in which your Savior died and He raised back to life, if you were going to make up that story, the last thing you would do is say, the witnesses of this resurrection were women because it would not be held up in a court of law and no one in that culture would believe it. So the only reason... The only reason the gospel writers would say women saw him resurrected is because it's true. That's the only value of it. That is true. If they were lying about this, they wouldn't include women in this story. And lastly, I'll tell you this. The empty tomb, the rise of Christianity, the eyewitnesses, but mainly the massive change you see in the disciples. Cowardly men into courageous witnesses. You can't explain this. All of the apostles would give their lives in cruel, radical ways. Now remember, think about this. Put yourself in their place. These are family men. Peter had a wife. These are family men who would give their life for this. Radically go from, from cowards to courageous because they saw him resurrected. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was dead and now is now alive? You've got to know why you believe that. You've got to examine yourself. And until his resurrection becomes real, you won't be on mission. And finally, let me give you this point. You've got the clarity of the mission. Go be my witnesses. You've got the competency. All of Scripture is about him. You've got the confidence. He did raise from the dead. And when you understand that, you'll join him. But you've got a commander unlike any other. For someone to carry out the mission of another person, there's got to be a connection. Now, most of us, when we have, like in our corporate settings, a mission, we are mostly loosely connected by money, right? <laughs> These people give me money, therefore I will carry out their mission. Nothing wrong with that. No problem with that. The company says, I'd like to give you money in exchange for you carrying out the mission of this company. That's fine. But for this kind of mission in which Jesus is not just calling for a period of your time, but for your life, You've got to know something about this leader. You've got to be bought into this leader. 
This is kind of like a startup company where somebody comes to you. Maybe you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire where he stands up and he's ready to start this new company, this new, this new agency. And he says, who's with me? And nobody gets up at this major corporation. They're all standing there looking at me like you're looking at me. And they're like, I'm not getting up. Because nobody in that room believes in Jerry Maguire. They don't believe in him. They think he's crazy. But there's one girl that is bought into him. Not just his message, but him. And she knows something about him. And she goes with him. You've got to know something about Jesus if you're going to go with him. And that's the importance of the ascension. Why does the ascension matter? You've got to know the significance of this event. And there's two things that are significant, and then we're done. Two things. Number one, when Jesus ascended, that means he vanished. He went up and went away to into the presence of the Father. He first took on his new position. He is now ruler and king. Paul would explain it this way in Ephesians 1, that Christ is now head over all things to the church, meaning this. He is sovereign over all things, and eventually, because he's sovereign over the world, all things will work out for good to those who are of the church. That's how history is going to conclude. Those who are his can trust that. He is king. His ascension was not, as we sometimes assume, a levitation. He just like kind of floated up into the clouds. It's not what it means. When you ascend, that doesn't just mean you climb a ladder and go from this altitude to this altitude. Ascension means you are coronated. You rise to the throne. If I said you ascend to the throne, that means that you are now the king or the queen. You're in charge. When Jesus ascended, he took his rightful position as sovereign king and lord of the world. And those who are his can trust that. Pretty important to remember an election cycle year, isn't it? That Jesus Christ is the one we can trust. So he took his new position, but he also took on a new purpose. He's at the right hand of the Father. And one of the things we see in Hebrews is that when he's at the right hand of the Father, it says that his position is that he is seated. Now, one of the jobs that Jesus took on was the high priest. And if you went and studied in the Old Testament and looked in the temple at the priests, there were no chairs in the temple. Do you know why there were no chairs in the temple? Because priests never did what? They never sat down. Why? Because their work was never finished. A priest's work was never finished. Sacrifices for sin had to be offered continually, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Priests could never sit down because sacrifices always had to be offered for sin. Why can Jesus sit down next to the Father? Because His work is done. Now, that has cosmic reasons. You know, God in heaven, Christ next to Him, He's sitting, sitting. great. Maybe He's got a comfy chair that sounds nice. But what does that mean for you? Does that matter to you? How many of you are churning with the internal restlessness of a soul that is trying to work yourself into a position to be right with God and don't realize that the ascended Jesus is sitting down? The work is over. It is finished. The priest has finished his work. So your restlessness... All your busyness, 
trying to make a name for yourself, trying to improve yourself, trying to impress others, all of that restlessness is wasted effort that could be directed towards the mission of spreading the news to all people that it's finished. The hope of the world has been given to us. And as uh, the Hebrew writer said, you can rest in what he's offered you. You can rest. So he's seated in his new purpose, but he's also advocating in his new purpose, in his new role. That means he is constantly claiming you at the throne of the Father. Regardless of where you have been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of things that you've seen, regardless of activities that you've done, the shame, the guilt, the fear, the doubt that you experience, Jesus right now is actively at the right hand of the Father saying, He, she is one of mine. And the amount of assurance that Christians are leaking out of their lives because they don't know what the ascended Jesus is doing right now is eroding Christianity. When Christians know that the ascended Christ is advocating for them and they can have assurance that the seated Christ, the work is done and He is claiming you as His and you can rest, guess what you'll start doing? Telling anybody and everybody, you can rest too. You'll get on mission. But you're not on mission because you're busy trying to save your own hide and your hide's already been saved. And Jesus is ascended trying to tell you, get on mission with me because your mission is done. Your work is complete. Go. Tell the world about this. And the implications are this. If you're not a Christian, you're missing the rest that your soul has not found yet. He was victorious over your sin, over your guilt, over your shame, over your fear. He was victorious. Those are all the drivers of your life, and he was victorious over those. He's ascended and he's seated, and now you can come to him. If you are a Christian... The question is, are you enjoying the reality of the ascended Jesus to enable you to be on mission with him? Are you? Is faith in who he is and where he is and what he's done bringing you peace? When it does, the penny will drop and you'll want nothing more than for other people to have this as well. You'll be on mission. The mission is always available to those who are not Christians or Christians who are not living on mission. We're here to help you. Let's stand and sing.